1: And welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset Team.
2: And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the Markets Team.
1: This week on the show, third quarter earnings season is in full swing. The banks kicked off reports with beats pretty much across the board. And after all that market talk, we'll be sitting down with one man at the center of one of the world's best performing stock markets. But Mike, I think we should leave people hanging.
2: All right, we'll leave them hanging. All right. We fair like enough. to leave them hanging. Usually we leave them hanging uh, till the end for the craziest thing we saw in markets this week. But this time we're going to leave them hanging uh, for the world's hottest stock market, I'll call That might be a little bit of a hit. <laughs> and also for fans of our segment, the craziest thing I ever saw in markets this week, uh, a special treat. I think it's going to be an elongated. Uh, version of that segment, because Sarah and I, the stars were aligned this week, and we both picked the same crazy market story to talk about. And it's a big one. It's a doozy. So it is a doozy. Right. So we'll get to that uh, earlier than usual as well. And uh, also joining us this week on the podcast, you know, it was a big week for bank earnings, all the big banks reported earnings. These are uh, incredibly important for a variety of reasons in markets. Uh, and to help us break it all down, we are happy to have Bloomberg reporter Felice Moranz on the show. Felice, welcome.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: And for our craziest thing we saw in Markets This Week discussion, uh, we're bringing in the big guns here. Chris Nagy, executive editor of Markets at Bloomberg. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Welcome Good. back, I guess it yep. is. Felice, let's start with you, though. Um, just big picture, what was sort of your main takeaway from this uh, parade of bank earnings we saw this week?
3: So it's important to remember that four big banks all reported simultaneously on Tuesday morning. And that really doesn't happen too often, it's if ever. The day. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of what happened passed in a giant flood. I would say the big takeaway is that everybody did really well, except for Goldman Sachs. Oh, no. So
1: walk us through the results. So let's start with Goldman Sachs. They didn't do well. So where was the big miss? What was the issue?
3: So with Goldman, uh, there were a couple of things. Overall, the earnings per share did miss. There were just a lot of things that caused them to miss and to be disappointing. On Tuesday, you had spectacular results from J.P. Morgan. And then Goldman came. And then you had Citi and Wells Fargo. And Citi and Wells Fargo weren't initially received so well either. But as the day went on, people became more positive.
2: So a lot of what I've read is that uh, one real standout uh, point of the business in this quarter was uh, what they call FIC, uh, you know, fixed income commodities and currency trading, um, predominantly because of the volatility in the bond market we saw. So, you know, uh, as a consumer, you know, as a sort of non-bank stock investor, I always want to see what the macro takeaway is from these earnings. You know, and I'm not sure that a robust bond trading uh, environment is necessarily a great sign <laughs> for the economy. Uh, you know, a lot of this volume came because, uh, you know, markets were so nervous about the economy uh, in this quarter. But walk us through sort of the, the consumer facing elements of the bank. I understand they were pretty strong results as well, despite this really narrow yield curves that we've seen that presumably would affect their net interest margins.
3: I would say that if you were looking at trading, you would indeed think, oh, Fick, that was a standout. But if you look overall at these results, the consumer was very healthy. And one big bright spot was credit card spending that helped lift Citigroup, in fact, shares of Citigroup, after its executives talked about how good credit cards were.
1: I know Jamie Dimon flat out said on the earnings call that the consumer still seems to be very healthy. However, he did signal out business confidence and said that we still see an issue surrounding business confidence. And he even talked about the trade war and tariffs to a sense. Did we hear any of the other executives talking about it on these calls? I mean, how much was consumer confidence or business confidence really a focus of of some of the conversation when analysts or even the media were asking questions?
3: Well, I think Jamie Dimon's comments were very interesting in the statement. He was very careful to swing back and forth between saying something very positive and then caveating and then saying another positive thing (laughs) and then caveating. Uh, I did notice that some people felt he wasn't as exuberant or cheerful as he usually is. He's seen as a big, very charismatic cheerleader for banks, and, and he wasn't as much this quarter.
2: I did also read that uh, several of the banks uh, did increase their reserves for potential bad loans uh, going forward. Was that a common theme? And is that just them reacting to what the rest of us have reacted to all years? that this uncertainty about the economy?
3: Well, there had been a little bit of an increase for energy loans. Capital markets were soft. There were some energy problems. Um, I think some banks also talked about credit normalization. That's because they've made more loans. So you have to uh, take precautions just because you have more lending out there. I think the takeaway really was that the consumer is healthy. People are still employed. There may be some hints or signs in the distant future, but for the third quarter, the economy stood solidly on the shoulders of the U.S. consumer.
2: You know, Chris, I, I often hear people say, "Well, you really need the bank stocks to to rally to do well in order to kind of confirm a, a bullish stock market." Um, yeah, are, are are you a buyer of that theory? Uh, and you know, does this week's earnings sort of make you optimistic about the uh, the the chance we'll get to another record this year?
4: I, I'm not really a buyer of that theory, but I'm pr- probably a sayer of that theory. <laughs> I, I, I think that's one of these Wall Street. Uh, um, axioms that you, you have trouble uh, not repeating about 4,000 times in your career, even if you wonder if it's true. Um, <laughs> I, I, from the perspective of here's the engine of the, uh, a, a con- the consumer engine of the economy, I think you, you basically have to say uh, at least that plank looks a little better than it did a couple of weeks or, or at least you've got some confirmation that it isn't falling off a cliff in the same way that manufacturing has. And that's by far the biggest, the market's biggest concern at the moment. So that's good.
1: We talk about bank earnings as if they're almost all that's happened this week because we typically focus on bank earnings the first week. But we got results from Honeywell, I want to point out, in which we did see them raise their profit forecast for the fourth quarter. Uh, we also got some not so great earnings from the likes of Netflix, I guess you could call it, except shares rallied because international subscriber growth was much better than expected. If you just look across the board, it's still very early on, but where do we currently stand in the er- earnings season and how do people feel at this point in time?
4: Well, I, I feel like Netflix is a big deal because there's sort of this creeping concern right now that uh, for various reasons, m- most of them having to do with WeWork, that basically the price of speculative equity on Wall Street is about to come come in for a reckoning and a, a reevaluation. So the fact that one of the poster children for those valuations is able to rally, and I don't that the rally totally lasted. And the fact that Netflix uh, uh, was, a, was able to, to stay elevated with that valuation after earnings is also uh, basically net net a good sign for, for uh, the, the market state at the moment.
2: Uh, so Felice, obviously we had the big banks come out. Uh, what else is coming up in the next week uh, that's on your radar that we should keep an eye out?
3: Well, I think it's interesting that Chris mentioned WeWork Uh, I want to point out also that Goldman reduced the value of its stake in WeWork by, I think it was $80 million. And people are keeping an eye on IPOs, all sorts of things. Another thing happening in the week to come, Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's CEO, is going to be testifying again in front of Congress. Uh, The payments companies who are partners in Libra have been dropping out. So he's probably not going to be uh, in the spotlight for the cryptocurrency Libra, as much as he would have been. But he'll still get asked a lot of really tough questions. So,
1: Felice, you also report a lot on the intersection of markets and policy. Give us a sense, like you said, Mark Zuckerberg will be testifying once again as we lead up to 2020 and the presidential election. We just had another Democratic debate this last week. What's the general sense? How much are investors, analysts, strategists really thinking about the election as something you need to take into? account when thinking about how to invest.
3: Investors are definitely keeping a very close watch. Two investor surveys uh, just in recent days showed us that investors think Elizabeth Warren is going to be the Democratic nominee, and they overwhelmingly think at the current moment that President Trump will be reelected in 2020.
2: Hard to reconcile those two yeah. thoughts, I guess. But uh, yeah. I tell you what, Sarah, I think we, it's time to transition right into the craziest thing. For the doozy. For the doozy. All right. And as we both agreed, uh, this is a, a wild story. It's in Vanity Fair uh, by William Cohen. And let me just read the headline to you. Uh, quote, there is definite hanky-panky going on. OK, I'm, I got my interest. All right. <laughs> and then the rest of it is the fantastically profitable mystery of the Trump chaos trades. And what the story is about is a bunch of really high volume trades in S&P 500 futures uh, that the author believes uh, or points out occurred right before announcements from President Trump or sort of other geopolitical events that uh, ended up boosting the stock market. And you know he uh, you know, writes about them suspiciously. Let me just read you one paragraph of this uh, story. Traders in the Chicago pits have been watching these kinds of wagers with an increasing mixture of shock and awe since the start of the Trump presidency. The precision and timing of these trades and the vast amount of money being made as a result of them make the traders wonder if all this is on the level. Are the people behind these trades incredibly lucky or do they have access to information that other people don't have about, say, Trump or Beijing's latest thinking on the trade war or any other of a number of ways that Trump is able to move the markets through his tweeting or slips of the tongue. So basically kind of a- accusing uh, Trump of leaking insider information about his plans to uh, traders and investors in the market. Uh, Chris Nagy, you're one of the gurus in this company as far as analyzing trade by trade, uh, you know, what's going on. Um, we talked about this earlier. I think if you were editing this story, uh, it might not have been published in exactly the same no, form. N- no one would have read it. <laughs> <laughs> but what what's your sort of takeaway on the story? And I know uh, your team's working on a story, uh, basically dissecting what, yeah. what happened here. I mean, I I don't think that there's gigantic
4: uh, opposition to the idea that the, the basic premise that Trump could be, as you put it earlier, wittingly or unwittingly telegraphing stuff that Wall Street traders and their you know immense wherewithal are able to pick up on and in some cases front run pretty much the unanimous view of, of of people we talk to is that this is sort of an instance of proof through a kind of juxtaposition you you're you're able to take uh it, Wall Street coughs up an enormous amount of gigantic futures trades in any given day or week and if you want to go uh, find one that times in a sort of overly lucky way against uh, some geopolitical event or basically anything. My my cat's rolling over. You can <laughs> you could you could easily uh, make a case that there's a, a causal or there's a, a casual link between the two. I, I think some of the words that you used uh, in describing the the article are, are key. He he he's pointing these things out and he's he's juxtapositioning them. He's doing it in a very arch and moral way and he's making it clear what his, what his point is, but really it's, it's kind of a, a, a marvel of juxtaposition and, uh, a lot of things are trotted out that uh, would be true literally at any time. It's also true that Trump is moving markets all of the time, too. So you have a, a very rich uh, landscape to mine uh, uh, whatever thesis you want out of. And I think that's basically what pe- how people are viewing this.
1: I was speaking with an investor and trader about this article and he said, yeah, you can basically back up. A story or a narrative for any trade out there. The problem is that if you have a story like this that runs, they never actually write about it obviously when you're wrong. That, that, that's the big,
4: yeah, it's sort of the, the null hypothesis <laughs> argument that uh, there can't be tons of other trades that look just like this that fall flat, but the fact is there are. Uh, your average, uh, you know, whatever, 10,000 10, or 100,000 uh, contract S&P futures trade doesn't precede a big market move and all of those get ignored and People aren't in the business of trying to sell magazines by writing about those, which I think is a relevant topic here. Yeah,
2: so what we're left with is some unnamed traders in the Chicago Pits saying mm-hmm. this looks a little fishy. Yeah. I got to say, I didn't even realize there were any pits left in Chicago. Either. Yeah, no, CME <laughs> so still has
4: Chicago Pits are where basically the high frequency trading industry grew out of. So one of the great technological things that's ever happened in this country. People right. can also, do. It, it's not like it's not like we want to disparage the Chicago Pits, but it's also <laughs> true that a, a scary amount of conspiracy theorizing seems to emanate from that area as well. Is that right? Yeah. Well,
2: <laughs> I got to call those guys up more. I need to. I yeah, need right. To, no, like journalists this. take note. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. We'll leave it at that then. Chris Nagy, Felice Morans. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks. Thank you.
5: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So, Sarah, let's shift gears now to that world's hottest stock market. And let's give listeners a little hint here, courtesy of a great band from Baltimore called Jaw Works. So, Sarah, obviously, the name of this podcast is What Goes Up, and one thing that's been going up consistently in recent years is the Jamaican stock market. Last I look, it's up about 400% since the end of 2013, and that's in U.S. dollar terms. By far and large, it's the best-performing stock market in recent years by by a mile. Um, And it's a very interesting market. I mean, it's a small market, obviously, a small country, small stock market, Um, And it's not the most convenient for foreign investors to invest in, but you cannot ignore how well it's been doing. So earlier in the year, or actually at the end of 2018 it was, I, I traveled to Kingston to report on it. And I'll I tell you, it was just a pure coincidence that my trip was in the middle of the winter. Just
1: I'm sure ab- that there was no other reason that you pitched a story idea to travel to Jamaica in the middle of, what was it, just February maybe? Coincidence,
2: December, December. <laughs> so uh, as it gets a little bit colder now, I'm thinking it might be time for a return Check. trip to, okay. to report on it. Because <laughs> once again, it's one of the best performing stock markets. And pretty much everyone I talked to while I was there uh, talked about the reasons for it being linked to the government finances being brought in order uh, the debt-to-GDP ratio in Jamaica was approaching about 150% after the last recession. And they took some some very drastic steps to get that down, uh, including a debt exchange where holders of Jamaican bonds uh, swapped their bonds for uh, for bonds paying a little bit less interest and longer maturities. Um, and one of the fellas who was very instrumental in that debt exchange, that fir- their first debt exchange they did too... But he was the finance minister during uh, the first exchange, and he's joining us on the show. His name is Audley Shaw. Welcome to the show, Audley. Thank you, thank you very much for having me. Thank you so yeah. much. I'm so
1: excited. And now thank his
2: title—he's got a, a better title now. It's Minister of Industry, Commerce, Agriculture, and Fisheries. Yeah. So you've got a lot on your plate there, Audley.
6: Yes, thank you. And and I was finance minister between 07 and 11. Right. And then 16 uh, to 18. And it was in that period, uh, since you mentioned the, uh, the stock exchange, that I, in fact, um, guided that process in 2009 when we established the junior stock exchange. But I must say to you that it, it had come out of a period, not just of, of um, important adjustments on the, the watchful eyes of the IMF in terms of the whole macroeconomy and how we manage the budgetary process and so on. It also came out of a period... When uh, the private sector had gotten risk averse, Uh, they had suffered from uh, periods of extremely high interest rates. In fact, in the 1990s, the average commercial bank lending rate was in excess of 50% for a decade it was the highest, if not the highest, in the world. Unbelievable, okay, unbelievable. So, so people just came out of productive uh, endeavors and investments, and were went into buy and sell because you have to buy and sell and make your money fast to pay those kinds of extraordinary interest rates. In some countries, including yours, it's illegal to have interest rates like that. Mm-hmm. So, so um, the stock exchange came out of of the the need to say, hold on, forget about going to banks to borrow high interest rate money, go for equity, right? And uh, it started there, and, um, and at the same time, simultaneously, we started a program of bringing down interest rates. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can uh, uh, proudly tell you that today, we are now having private sector borrowing money in single-digit interest rates. Compared wow. to right, 50%. 6%, 7%, yeah. 8%, 8%. Absolutely, <laughs> right? And at the same time, they're also investing heavily in this junior stock exchange. And that is why it is growing uh, at the phenomenal rate that, that is growing uh, at, at this time. Because encouraging equity investments and a lot of young entrepreneurs um, are, are targeting that avenue. And we're very pleased with the progress that it's making. So the
2: junior exchanges for very small companies. I, is it hundred million Jamaican dollars? I believe or, or less, roughly that. Right, and it, it, they get a tax incentive. Isn't that correct? To, yes, to absolutely. List on the stock. No, they don't have to pay uh, income tax for what is it? A, a few years after? It's, they, uh, it's It's
6: ten years. Ten years. Yes, absolutely. In in fact, in fact, um, in March of two thousand and sixteen, the previous government was going to um, close it down. And that's when I became a finance minister again, <laughs> after a, after a four year break. And the first act that I took was to was to uh, keep it to say no. The junior stock exchange remains in place, and as a result of that, there is renewed interest, more people going for equity financing rather than than uh, than you know loans. And um, and it's it's really phenomenal what's happening now. As a matter of fact, I'm now encouraging the new minister of finance to look at uh, at an, uh, another feature called the uh, nano stock exchange. It's it's aimed it's aimed at the micro, the, the micro uh, even smaller than than what the junior stock exchange uh, targeted. And uh, because you see, ninety percent of Jamaican businesses. Are small and medium enterprises okay and one of the things that is ironic about it right now is that the bulk of loans to the private sector are elevated among the ten percent the ninety percent many of them don't even have loans but if they were able to get more equity financing right then they, they'll be able to be more productive then they'll be able to systematically work with the government in targeting critical areas of new development and growth, uh, export markets. I mean, in Jamaica, we produce so many th- good things that, that we now need to put it at an industrial level to, to replace the traditional sugarcane. We have orchard crops, you have mangoes, you have fruit of all types, avocados, um, you know uh, all kinds of things that are that are in global demand, and what you don't sell fresh, you can sell it processed. You have clear markets, you have the tourism industry, you have caricom, you have the diaspora of Jamaicans in the US, England, Canada. you have um, third country markets that are crying out for exotics. Mm-hmm. And I'm introducing another one, which is exciting for us. It's a homegrown school feeding program. All of these things require investment, right? And if we can, if we can get the micro and small businesses to embrace these opportunities, and part of embracing that is to have, have them access our money in, in an affordable way through the, the junior and possibly a micro stock exchange.
1: So the returns are undeniably strong on the Jamaican Stock Exchange. But I'm wondering, how many companies have you guys been getting interest from in wanting to be listed on whether it's the regular stock exchange or a micro stock exchange or the junior stock exchange?
6: Well, a lot of companies. I don't have the exact numbers, though, because I'm not... Um, that intimately
1: <laughs>
6: <laughs> in that ministry anymore, but but uh, the interest is there, and that is why I'm actually proposing to to my minister, uh, my colleague minister, and to the prime minister that that we don't rule out looking at at a, at a nano stock exchange, um, because I, I think that that will that will help to further stimulate the drive towards more productive investments, mm-hmm. right? And the, the, the old tradition of buy and sell is that enough to help you to, to, to lift especially rural areas from poverty, okay? We need to add value, and we need to build a value chain from what you grow to what you process and what you target, not just the local markets but to the export markets.
2: Right. And if you were to speak to sort of the international class of investors, which I imagine there's a, a few of them among our, our listeners, um, what type of investment into Jamaica would be your preferred uh, style? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that Jamaica wants to see, say, a Starbucks on every corner or a McDonald's on every quarter. What is the type of investment that you would like to see happen?
6: Well, I'll tell you something. The construction industry is booming Yeah, right now. Absolutely. Booming—that's the only word I can I, I can use to describe it.
2: Partly as a, right? a function of interest rates, I imagine.
6: Abs- absolutely, yeah. but in addition to that, now where where investors um can come and, and benefit is to bring technology and 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 work with our farmers and and, and create the industrial base. So you're moving to um, from fresh to agro processing, right? So what you don't sell fresh, you sell processed. And I mean, nowhere has, has, has demonstrated that more than the United States, right? And that's an opportunity that, that, that we could have between investors coming, bring technology, bring, bring markets, and, and share in joint venture with Jamaican producers. Now, one emerging industry, of course, is the cannabis industry. And that is an, an area now that requires a, a lot of drilling down. Because part of what is holding up the, the the rapid advancement of a legitimate international medicinal cannabis industry ironically is the is the slowness with which the United States is dealing with the issue um, there are some good early signs however they have now approved the uh, the uh, hemp production which is low in the THC which is the Toxic level, zero point three percent. That's now approved in a farm bill, right? And which means banking is alright for that. A few weeks ago, they approved the Safe Banking Act, which is allows for uh, uh, s- banks within within each state to, to do banking of cannabis. What has not been done and needs to be done now is interstate banking. It needs to be allowed, and then correspondent banking between countries that have legitimate, licensed at international standards, a cannabis industry, uh, and and that correspondent banking once put in place, will see the the, the rapid um, advancement of an industry, which your own researchers, by the way, I was at a Harvard, I was at Harvard uh, recently a few weeks ago at a. At a, a conference on phyto and cannabis and they have since come to Jamaica because of our uniqueness with with cannabis in Jamaica and they are it it is being demonstrated beyond the shadow of a doubt that medicinal cannabis is a credible alternative to the opioid epidemic that is killing off Americans between 50 to 70 thousand Americans are being killed from opioid overdose right now and medicinal cannabis beyond the shadow of a doubt has been proven to have more good to it, right? Well, cannabis has more good to it than bad. And of course, medicinal cannabis carefully targeted, carefully researched is, is, is a credible answer as an alternative to opioids.
2: And I obviously, uh, tremendous potential source of economic growth for, for your Absolutely, country. absolutely. And, and from a stock market perspective, which is the way sort of the lens we view things from, I know for you it, it's very frustrating to see Canadian companies able to list in the United States, yes. and yet yeah, you're pretty much completely locked out of the, the industry. But,
6: but, but we, can you guys tell me, explain to me, why our banks that are inextricably linked to New York banks m- – wherever we are transferring money from Jamaican banks we go through New York can you please explain to me how it is that that cannabis companies in Jamaica the banks close them down right because of the the, the lack of correspondent banking in New York yet cannabis companies from Canada can list on the New York stock exchange Hello! Can somebody explain this to me? I
1: wish I could explain it to you. I do.
2: I cannot explain it. If anyone can, they can call the What Goes Up hotline and explain it to us. Uh, The Honorable Audley Shaw, it was great to have you on the show. We really appreciate your time.
6: Thank you. God bless you both. Thank you.
1: What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. Our guest, Chris Neji, is at ChrisNeji1. And Audley Shaw is at Audley Shaw. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And don't forget, you can call our very own Bloomberg Podcast Hotline, at 646-324-3490. If you leave us a message, remember we may even play it on the show. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.